If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 10. This morning will be the Gospel of John chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. The Apostle John writes for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he records for us here the words of Jesus. And Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth his own, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger, they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand the things what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life. And have it abundantly. Now, the words of our Lord Jesus that we have read in these first 10 verses of John chapter 10, and even those words which stretch all the way down through verse 18, follow directly on the heels of what we saw last week in chapter 9 that account of the healing of the man who had been born blind. And we can we can see this given John's comments that he gives us there in verses 19 through 21. And those comments there in verses 19 through 21 refer back to the healing of that man which had been born blind. And so the words of chapter 10 verse 1 then obviously follow directly on the heels of chapter 9 verse 41. Jesus had been speaking there at the end of chapter 9 to these Pharisees who thought that they could see but were actually spiritually blind. And he said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin remains. And then immediately following those words there, Jesus continues speaking to them by giving them a brief parable of sorts in chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. These verses are what John describes for us in verse 6 as a a figure of speech. And so Jesus is using this, this figure of speech or this imagery here of shepherding to describe the difference between himself and false teachers. And just to be clear, the Pharisees with whom he was interacting were among the number of those whom Jesus considered to be false teachers, right? He said, because you say you can see, your blindness remains, your sin remains. And so it's very clear Jesus regards these men as blind, therefore regards them as false teachers. So so first of all, as we look at this, let's, let's unpack this figure of speech there in verses 1 through 5. And then we'll come around to consider from Jesus' words who he is and why he has come. So we'll look at the figure of speech, then we'll look at who Jesus is, we'll look at why Jesus has come. Now in this figure of speech, Jesus refers to the, the fold of the sheep, and by this he means a sheep pen. This sheep pen would have been some kind of an enclosure, perhaps that maybe even several families from a 
particular area might have kept their sheep in at night. They might have hired a night watchman or in the words of verse 3, a doorkeeper or a gatekeeper to to keep watch over the door at night, make sure that nobody got in who was uh, not supposed to get in, make sure that none of the sheep got out. And Jesus says there that if someone tries to get into this sheepfold by any other way than the door, such a person is a thief or a robber. The rightful shepherd of the sheep could just go up to the door when it was time to get the sheep and, and bring them out. The doorkeeper would open the door. It's no problem. This man is the, is the shepherd. This man owns the sheep. Of course, we'll let the sheep go out to him. But if someone was sneaking around some other way, trying to get into the sheep pen, the odds are that they're up to no good. If they're trying to get into the sheep pen some other way, they're likely trying to steal the sheep or perhaps to brutalize them in some way. But on the other hand, the case of the shepherd, he just enters in by the door. Doorkeeper, the gatekeeper, opens up to the shepherd. The sheep hear the voice of the shepherd. They know his voice. He calls out his sheep by name. He leads them out to pasture. He goes out in front of them and leads them. And they follow because they know him. They know his voice. In the case of someone who is not the shepherd, someone who is a stranger, the sheep will not follow him because they do not recognize his voice. The true sheep will run away from someone who's not the true shepherd. This is this figure of speech that Jesus lays out before the Pharisees there in verses 1 through 5. But according to verse 6, they, they don't get it. They did not understand what Jesus was communicating to them. This is why we read in verse 7, So Jesus said to them again, or it could also be translated as, Therefore Jesus said to them again. In other words, in, in what follows, Jesus is, is clarifying and explaining this figure of speech that he'd been using up in verses 1 through 5. And so what does Jesus say in order to clarify? Well, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And Lord willing, as we'll see next week, Jesus goes on to claim that he's not only the door, but he's also the good shepherd as well. In claiming to be the door, Jesus is claiming to be the way of salvation. As is clear from verse 9, Jesus is the door of the sheepfold, the only way for the sheep to enter into God's sheep pen is through Jesus. If anyone enters through Jesus, he will be saved. He'll be able to go into the sheep pen at night and be safe. He'll be able to go out of the sheep pen during the day and find pasture. He'll have his needs provided. The one who enters through Jesus will be safe. But Jesus mentions some other people here who are up to no good. These are thieves and robbers, or in the words of verse 5, a stranger. These thieves, robbers, strangers are false shepherds. They are not truly caring for the flock. Rather, they're seeking to use the flock for their own advantage. Just think back to our Old Testament reading uh, that Mark read for us from Ezekiel chapter 34. What did the Lord say there? He said, Woe, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves, should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back. Nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and severity, you have dominated them. 
That's what Ezekiel said, Ezekiel 34, 2 through 4, rather the Lord through Ezekiel. And these are the kinds of shepherds that Jesus is talking about here when he speaks in terms of thieves, robbers, and strangers. There were priests and teachers in Ezekiel's day who behaved like this, that description that Ezekiel gave us, and there were priests, teachers, experts in the law, Pharisees, Sadducees in Jesus' day who were doing the same kind of thing. They were not truly caring for the flock of God as they should have. They were rather abusing the flock and seeking to use the flock for their own advantage. Jesus had said in verse 1 that if anyone does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. These thieves and robbers who were selfishly using the flock were ones who did not enter through Christ. That is to say, they did not come in through the door. They did not believe in Jesus nor trust in him. As such, their faith was not right, and their attempts and their motives in attempting to shepherd the flock of God was not right. And one of the implications of this is that anyone who would shepherd the flock of Christ must come to his task through Christ. Obviously, Christ is is the good shepherd. Christ is the, the chief shepherd, as we read in our unison reading, 1 Peter 5. But there are under-shepherds. There were under-shepherds in the Old Testament time. There are under-shepherds in the New Testament times. And it is required of under-shepherds that they enter into their labor through Christ, trusting in Christ themselves, turning from sin in obedience to Christ, seeking Christ's glory first and foremost in their work, seeking along with that the well-being of Christ's flock. If a shepherd enters into his work in any other way than that, he's a thief, he's a robber, he's a stranger. There were thieves, robbers, and strangers in the Old Testament times. There are thieves, robbers, and strangers in the New Testament time. This is, this is how it goes. It's not how it should go, but this is a fact. And Jesus goes so far as to say in verse 8 that all who came before him were thieves and robbers. Now, we need to understand that statement there with some qualification. There were certainly true and faithful shepherds before Christ. So we read things like this in the Psalm, Psalm seventy-seven twenty: You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Likewise, Psalm 78, 70, uh, verse 70 through 72. He also chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds, from the care of the ewes with suckling lambs, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. And so Jesus' point there in verse 8 is not that absolutely everyone who shepherded the people of Israel, the people of God before him, were not shepherds at all, but were rather thieves and robbers. There were some who were clearly good shepherds. But what Christ means is that many were not true shepherds. There were many who were seeking their own honor instead of the honor of God. There were many who were seeking their own honor instead of the honor of the Son of God. There were many who had not been sent by God. And rather than being prophets, they were false prophets. Rather than being true teachers, they were false teachers. There were, from time to time, also those figures in in Judaism, especially as you get 
into the, the time period of the first century. You have these, these people who claim to be somebody, messianic figures or something like that. And so if you think back to uh, Gamaliel's counsel to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, Gamaliel mentioned a couple of guys, Theudas and Judas of Galilee, these men who had arisen and claimed to be somebody, tried to start a revolt or a rebellion or something like that. And it all came to nothing. These were thieves and robbers. They had not been sent by God. They did not enter in through the door. In the Old Testament times, they were not looking ahead to Christ or trusting in him nor seeking his glory nor seeking the welfare of God's flock. But as Jesus said in verse 8, he said something very helpful. He said, the sheep did not hear them. That is to say, the true sheep, the elect of God, those who were truly God's people, did not listen to them. They did not follow these false shepherds. As Jesus says in verse 5, a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. So this is what Jesus is trying to communicate to these Pharisees who were actually blind but were convinced that they could see. These people who were attempting to shepherd but were false shepherds. Jesus says true shepherds of God's people come in through the door. They don't seek to gain access to God's people by coming to the fold in an unauthorized way. And as the Son of God, the incarnate Savior and mediator, Jesus is the door to the sheepfold. All shepherds must come through him, acknowledging him, trusting him, and serving him. And in fact, Jesus himself is the chief shepherd and the good shepherd of the sheep. The true sheep of God know Christ and follow him He's the one who leads them out to pasture and provides for their souls. The true sheep don't recognize a stranger and they don't follow him because they don't recognize his voice. They don't follow thieves and robbers. This is this figure that Jesus was giving to these Pharisees. And so now that we have our bearings in regard to this figure of speech and Jesus' explanation of it, we come now to focus on those two things, who Jesus is And why he has come. We find the first in verses 7 and 9. We find the second in verse 10. So Jesus says, I am the door. The way of salvation is through him and is only through him. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. And what this means is that Jesus is the door to God, as it were. There's no getting to God the Father apart from Christ. And as you know, Jesus says this explicitly in John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is the door to God. He is the door to eternal life. Apart from Christ, we are dead in sin. But now is the time such that those who hear the voice of the Son of God will live. Those who believe in Christ, who trust in him for the forgiveness of their sins and repent, will have eternal life. They will enter into life through Jesus Christ. They will go in and will go out. They will find pasture. Their souls will be satisfied in Christ. So Jesus is the door. You have to enter into the sheep pen through him. There's no other legitimate way to get in. You have to enter through him. And entering through him then means that we have to abandon all other ways of trying to get to God. We have to abandon all other ways of trying to save ourselves. We go to Christ alone. We come to Christ alone on his terms alone. We receive salvation at his hands completely as a gift of his grace 
and we give ourselves completely to him in service and in obedience. So Jesus is the door. That's, that's who he is. And then why he has come is found there in verse 10. Jesus says, the thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, expressing himself as he does, Jesus contrasts himself with the thief or with these, these false teachers who had come before him or who were currently operative in his day. And he gives three reasons why the thief has come. To steal, to kill, and destroy. These false teachers who did not enter through the door came not for the benefit of the sheep, but they came for the destruction of the sheep. Anyone who points someone else away from Christ is doing exactly this. Stealing, killing, destroying. They steal the soul of the person as it was from the sovereign Lord who has rights over it. Perhaps in the case of some false shepherds, there's an element of financial greed in that they're hoping to get some material gain from the one whom they are leading astray. They kill the soul and destroy it by turning the person away from the only source of life who is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the kind of thing which the religious leaders of Jesus' day were doing. And Jesus makes the point very clear in Matthew 23, verses 13 and 15, when he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. People were turning people away from the kingdom of God. Jesus pronounces a woe against that. Matthew 23, 15, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Again, these people are actively seeking to turn people away from the kingdom of God, seeking to turn people away from the sheepfold, away from the door. Certainly the statements of Jesus in John 10 and Matthew 23 apply to false teachers who turn others away from Christ, but it is also fully applicable to Satan himself, who is ultimately behind all false teaching, which leads souls away from Jesus Christ. And the Apostle Paul showed the similarity between the work of Satan on the one hand and the work of false teaching in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, verses 2 through 4, where he said this, he said, For I am jealous of you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. Paul sees a connection there between the... Uh, the work of Satan who deceived Eve and this, this work of false teaching that can uh, sometimes work its way into the church. False teachers, false shepherds come to steal and kill and destroy. Satan does the same thing. And we can say without question that Satan's ultimate purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. We saw just, just recently, back in chapter 8, that Satan is a liar and the father of lies, that he was a murderer from the beginning. And indeed, one of the names by which he is called in Scripture is Apollyon. Revelation 9-11, that means destroyer. And what was Satan doing when he showed up in the garden in Genesis 3? 
He was stealing, killing, and destroying. He was stealing Adam and Eve from the life and fellowship with God for which they were created. And he killed them because when they ate of the fruit, they died. They didn't immediately die in the physical sense, but they died spiritually and were made liable to physical death and eternal death. Satan stole, he killed, and he destroyed. And as we know, the text of Genesis bears this out, the havoc that was wrought. Because the very next chapter, Genesis 4, you have an actual murder. Cain murders Abel. And then a few generations after that, Lamech is ready to continue that murderous streak. He said, I have killed a man for wounding me and a boy for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, then Lamech 77-fold. This is why the world is in the shape that it is in today. This is why all of the centuries of misery have come upon the human race, because our first parents listened to Satan rather than God. Sin is introduced, and now we are born in sin, and our natural heart's desire is to listen to Satan instead of to, instead of to God. And we listen also to other smaller thieves who are working for the great thief. We are thus robbed and killed and destroyed by small thieves and the great thief himself because the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He has nothing benevolent to offer. It's only to steal and kill and destroy. There's no good part about the thief coming, whether it's the great thief, Satan himself, or the smaller thieves who work for him. There's plenty of, plenty of bad news there in verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But the good news of the gospel is also there in verse 10 as well. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He gives us here the reason for his coming. That is that they, men and women, his sheep, may have life. All who ever came before him, who were leading men and women any other direction than towards him, were thieves under the authority of Satan. Their collective aim was only murder, robbery, and destruction. But then the Son of God comes into the world in accordance with the plan laid out beforehand, prophesied and promised in the Old Testament. And he came that men and women might have life and have abundance. And so what does this mean, to have life and have abundance? Well, be sure, Jesus is not saying that our earthly lives are going to be easy not even saying that they are necessarily going to be even halfway nice. Even a casual reading of the New Testament knows nothing of the sort. Quite the contrary, we read of all the difficulties that will come upon us for following Christ. Jesus says things like, take up your cross, follow me. It's not meant to sound easy. We read in Acts 14.22 that The Apostle Paul was encouraging new believers who were being persecuted, and he said to them, through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. We read in 2 Timothy 3.12 that indeed all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so when Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have abundance, we shouldn't think that he's saying that he gives to his people the good life, as the world would consider it, in the here and now. He calls his people to what is potentially a very difficult life, potentially a very dangerous life in the here and now. And so what kind of life is it that Jesus is talking about? If he calls us to a difficult life or dangerous life here, what does he mean when he said, I came that they may have life? He's talking about the restoration 
of the life of God in the soul of man. This is spiritual life that begins now and lasts forever. Indeed, the, the New Testament is always talking about this kind of thing. Just, just think with me about uh, what we've seen in the Gospel of John. John 1, we're told that in him, in Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. We're told that all who received him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to them to become sons of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. This is the life that Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus of when he said that except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless a man has that life that is given to him from God by the Holy Spirit, unless you're born of the Spirit, you cannot be part of God's kingdom. Thus it was that when Jesus was speaking to the Samaritan woman at the well, he said that if she had known the gift of God, And who it was that asked her for a drink, she would have asked him, and he would have given her living water, which would become in her a well of water springing up to eternal life. This is the life that Jesus was speaking of in John 6, 53 and 54, when he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And of course, Jesus is using this, this metaphor of, of eating his flesh and drinking his blood as a, as a metaphor for faith. Reliance on Christ, reliance on his body which was given for us, his blood which was shed for us on the cross. And again, this is the life that John was speaking of when he told us why he wrote this gospel. Near the, near the end of the book, John 20, verse 31, when he said, These things have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you may have life in his name. This is why Jesus came, so that the sheep may have life, new life, because we've been killed already by the wiles of Satan. He came that we might have a restored fellowship with God because the devil had came and stolen that away from us and destroyed the fellowship with which our first parents had with God. And Paul sums this up so wonderfully in Ephesians 2 when he says that God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the life that Christ came to give, a life in which we are raised from deadness of sin to new life in Jesus Christ, a life in which wickedness is done away with, a life in which we are raised from sinking down further and further and declining further and further away from God to a life in which we are now walking to be closer and closer to God because of the great work of Christ for us and subsequently the work of the Holy Spirit in us. We're thus remade in the image of God and conformed to the image of his dear son. And those who receive this life are now seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We are transferred out of the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of Christ. And now we become pilgrims here on this earth because our citizenship is in heaven. This is the life that Jesus came to bring. This is the life that he is speaking of. But he says, though, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. It could also be translated as him saying, I came that they may have life 
and have abundance. And I would actually lean toward that, that second translation, that they may have life and have abundance. The sentence structure seems to be split, uh, seems to split the emphasis between the two, or to, in other words, place the emphasis on each one. Jesus came that we may have life and that we may have abundance. So we've already considered how Jesus came that we may have life. Jesus came also that we may have abundance. Well, abundance of what? An abundance of every good thing that Jesus came to bring us. So John says in John 1.16, For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Through Christ we receive an abundance of grace. Through Christ we receive an abundance of mercy. Through Christ's work, we receive an abundance of the love of God, which has been poured out in our hearts, as Paul says in Romans 5. Through Christ, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, who has been sent forth in our hearts, as we find in Galatians chapter 4. Through Christ, we receive an abundance of peace. As he says in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Through Christ, we receive an abundance of joy. He says in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Jesus came that we may have life and have abundance. But how does Jesus do this? How does Jesus give us this new life? How does Jesus give us this abundance? In other words, what's the connection between the coming of Christ, the I have come, and the bestowal of this new life and abundance. Well, Christ bestows this life and abundance upon us by saving us from our sins. And he accomplished this by his death and resurrection. And so we're told in 1 John 3, 5 that he appeared in order to take away sins. 1 John 3, 8 that he appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. And this is what he did. He saved his people from their sins by taking their sins away and by destroying the work of the devil. Christ our Lord was sinless and therefore able to go to the cross to take our place, to take our sins upon him so that we might receive his righteousness. And as he was on the cross, he suffered the wrath of God because he is both God and man. And therefore he was able to pay the infinite debt on the cross which we owed he was able to pay it because he was man. He was able to bear the, the weight of that wrath because he is really and truly God. And again, the, the Apostle Paul brings these elements of life and death and forgiveness of sins and the defeat of Satan through the work of Christ on the cross together so beautifully in Colossians two thirteen to 15, where he says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. This is why Jesus came, that we may have life and have abundance. And wonder of wonders, Jesus gives this life and abundance to us by dying. A horrific death. Through his death we have life. And through his resurrection as well. He rose from the grave and defeated death itself. 
And this, this is the good news of the gospel right here, that Christ came that we may have life. And so having seen then who, who Jesus is and why he has come, having seen this, this figure of speech that Jesus laid out there in verses 1 through 5, what should we do then in light of these great truths? Well, first of all, it means that we need to stop seeking for life outside of Christ. Now, if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, then you need to understand that you're under the curse of sin and death because you were born a sinner and because being born a sinner, you commit acts of sin and you love to sin. You need to understand that as things stand right now, you're dead in your sins. And if you continue on in them, you will only die forever, suffering the judgment of God. But you also need to understand that this is exactly why Jesus came. It's for people like you and people like me, because we were dead. And Jesus came that we might have life. Jesus was born to save sinners, sinners who didn't deserve anything good at all. And I call upon you this morning to to believe this message, to turn from your sins and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and receive this life that he offers to you as a free gift of his grace. And if you have more questions about what this means, you can talk to me after the service. You can talk to another Christian here. We would love to tell you more about this, about why Jesus came and about how you may have life in his name. This message that Christ has come that we may have life, also has implications for those of us who have already received Christ, for those of us who have already, through faith, received this new life that Jesus came to bring. For us, it also means that we need to stop looking for life outside of Christ. And so, as we think about this, what is it that you look toward in order to draw your life from, as it were? What gives you life? What do you look to, in order to, to give you strength to live from day to day. I venture to say that for many of us, myself included, far too often we look for life outside of Christ, as if that was what we really needed, as if it were to be found somewhere else other than in Jesus Christ. Or perhaps as if the life that Christ gives is not really enough. We look to our, our work or to our hobbies, or to sports, or to relationships, or or so on. You can think for yourself, fill in the blank, whatever it might be. We think perhaps implicitly, if not explicitly, that these other things will give us life or will give us abundance, instead of looking to Jesus for life and abundance. And we can do this by either blatantly doing what Jesus has told us not to do, or by simply loving him less than he deserves to be loved, and by bestowing on something else the love that rightly should be going to Jesus. Instead of loving Jesus with all of our hearts, we maybe give a piece of our heart to Jesus and most of it to something else. This is wrong. Those things that we think that will give life to us will prove to be worthless and even worse than worthless. Because they've gained an affection in our heart that should actually only belong to Christ alone. Only in Jesus Christ are life and abundance to be found. And I think, I think the prophet Jeremiah of old illustrated this so well. 
And uh, the Lord spoke through him. This is Jeremiah 2.13. The Lord says, My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And that's, that's what we're doing. If we seek for life and abundance anywhere, then in Jesus Christ. We're forsaking the, the fountain of living waters where there are fresh, life-giving streams, clear, cool, abundant water, never lacking. We're trying to shut that off, as it were. And instead, we're going to the labor and the trouble to dig out a big hole in the ground, a cistern to hold water. And the goal, of course, is for a cistern to hold water and to retain it. But the water that's in there is going to get, going to get yucky, right? It's going to get, going to get stagnant. It's going to get insects in it. It's going to get stuff growing in it. It's a far, far cry different from this life-giving stream that is fresh and new and living. And so we go to the trouble. We dig the cistern. The water that can hold is not, not great. But it's even worse than that in that the Lord says... They've hewn cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. All the labor and effort that we've gone to in hewing the cistern doesn't even work out well. It's not even able to hold the yucky water. How's that working out for us? Forsaking the Lord, the fountain of living water, is a fool's errand. We're only making ourselves the losers when we do that. William Romaine of old said it well when he said it would be better for us If we leaned more upon the Lord and less upon other props, I have found that they have not only failed me when I trusted most to them, but generally hurt me most. Right? The things that we lean on other than the Lord not only fail us, they actually hurt us. This is no good. So we need to repent by loving Christ more and by looking to him alone for life and for abundance. Because what could be more wonderful than this? That the Son of God comes and humbles himself. He becomes a man in the incarnation. The eternal Son of God becomes a man and unites himself with the human race in the incarnation. He dies so that he can take away our sins. And he rises again so that he can show that sin and death and Satan have been defeated. He brings life and immortality to light through the gospel. What could be more excellent and wonderful than this? Shame on us if we consider this to be a small thing. And may God forgive us if we have or if we do. And may he continually bring to our minds and impress upon them the absolute wonder of the gospel that God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them. Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life may have abundance. May God be praised. Let's pray. Our Father, we do ask your mercy that we think so little of Christ and of what he came to do for us. We think so little of the grace, mercy, peace, and love, joy that is ours through him. We ask that you would forgive us for this and that you would help us, that we would see would say that only in the Lord is life and abundance. Only in Christ are these great things that we need. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to love Christ with singleness of heart. And we ask your continued blessing and grace to be upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.